0: This production has been brought to you by the Free Lunch Podcast. Unauthorized use and or duplication of this material without express and written permission from the Free Lunch Podcast is strictly prohibited.
1: This show has been brought to you by the Thomas Allen Collection. The Thomas Allen Collection is a men's accessory line designed to attract and capture a variety of tastes with a unique appeal. Thomas Allen strives to produce an extraordinary design to turn a new leaf on fashion for men. And at desired occasions. If I told you once, I told you several times on this podcast that um, when, ladies, get your men a Thomas Allen collection tie. They'll love it. Gentlemen, get your Thomas Allen collection tie. Uh, you can't go wrong with rocking a Thomas Allen collection tie at a formal event. I'll be rocking one in an upcoming um, at the CBC events. Uh, BG, don't you own the uh, Thomas Allen Collection, Ty?
0: Yes, sir. And they way fly than anything that's already out there. I got a couple of them. So I recommend going out there and getting some of that flay.
1: Yep. Thomas Allen Collection. Um, you can reach him at 678-960-9171. 678-960-9171. Thomas Allen. When time and not really counts. Now on to the show. Ladies
2: and gentlemen. A classic. A classic. This is love. It's been a long, long time coming. But I know a change don't come. Yeah, I chose the path. The path shows me. This is love plan. Divine decrees. Natural high. Window sheet Upper parallel view. Let the ghetto see. BK.
1: I'm at GLT, amazing grace. Hate for... Welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast, home of the New South Movement. This is your boy, Tight Tight, one-half of the Free Lunch Podcast duo. I got the main man, BGZ, with me. BGZ, what's happening?
0: Yep, BG270Kid. doing this Free Lunch Podcast thing,
1: interviewing as usual, Southern Journalistic. How you feel today, Tight? Hey, no games, no gimmicks. We never not working, guys, so it's been a very interesting time. Uh, looking forward to today's guest. Uh, we have the honor of really having a conversation, I think, that's going to be a new to a lot of our audience members, but one that's very historic in nature. And, and, and I'm really interested in this particular guest because uh, of just his experience and being able to share with us the time frame of what was going on back in the early 60s and 70s and his relationship that he's built throughout the years. so i think it's going to be a really 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 entertaining uh but very informative and interesting show
0: might be one of the most controversial (laughs) events that we've had in a while and not controversial because of his history but controversial as him and um Instructing me on how to be a better man. Oh, right. get into that. get into that. But yeah, indeed, um, like you said, an historical figure, um, someone that has a, a story, and a story that that we can relate to as it, as it stands with uh, being in a mode of, of wanting to see a better world and a better place coming from a humanitarian standpoint and, and wanting to exist in a space to where all people are treated fairly, and equally, and um, is treated as, as 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 human beings, regardless of race, creed, gender, and all those type of things. So, his story does reflect that he's been a fighter and an advocate for for those type of rights, for for people's rights. Uh, what I listen should get from it today, man. It should get some history, definitely, and definitely some perspective, um, which is what we aim to do here.
1: And and even before you introduce him, but one thing I wanted to also say was we like to use this show. As a time capsule. For our audience members we like to be able to capture from the horse's mouth per se, um, in our case from our guest's mouth, um, history. And it can't be rewritten, it can't be to- retold because it's coming from the source and from the primary source and being able to use this podcast as a platform to empower our listeners um, both from a educational perspective, but also empower them just from an inspirational perspective as well. So I just wanted to make certain that I, I kind of make that point, how we use this as a time capsule.
0: Yeah, so getting into it, our, our special guest today is uh, Mr. Bill Ayers. Um, he's an American elementary education theorist and a former leader in the counterculture movement that opposed U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. Um, he's known for his activism during the 60s, and also known for his current work in education reform, curriculum, and instruction, which will be a very important part of this discussion um, as it relates to current educational system. In 1969, I think that date is correct, co-founded the Weather Underground. And he'll get into explaining fully what the Weather Underground is. Uh, as of right now, he's a retired professor, retired from the College of Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, formerly holding titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar. And to some, you may have heard his name come up here recently, 2008, leading into the presidential campaign and presidential election of now President Barack Obama. So we'll have some of that in this podcast too. But to our Free Lunch Podcast family, we'd like to take this time to welcome our special guest, Mr. Bill Ayer. Thank you so much. Thank you
3: so much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yeah, can I can I tell an interesting story? Let me tell you how, how nice this guy is for us. Uh, we I, I literally met him at, a, at an event in, in D.C., uh, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Busboys and Poets and had an opportunity just to talk with him for um, if you're willing and you're open to it, I would love to have you on our show. And from a series of emails, he was more than willing and, and, and interested in joining our show. So just from the emails that we've shared and we've done back and forth, I really just want to personally thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to share with the people today what you were standing for back in that time and just provide some historical perspective to what was going on. So thank you a lot. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And I was third party in those in exchanges, those but it seemed like it was almost the, the next day or two days after the event that uh, Mr. Ayers got back with us and was, you know, I could just feel the excitement. And him being willing to come and have this discussion with us today, so like you say, he's extremely grateful. But I got to ask a question. Sure. The young man came in with a t-shirt, and I'm a t-shirt guy. <laughs> that t-shirt reads "Black Lives Matter." That's right. That's what I love. <laughs> and I, um, you, you recently wrote uh, a piece, a, a short blog on Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is controversial, especially controversial for those that are not black.
3: Well, you know, I, I have this shirt on. I, I, I was wearing it today. It's fascinating. Like everything else in America, it's it's kind of a signal, and I get various reactions. Mm-hmm. Some people scowl at me, and some people lean over and say, I like your shirt. You know, and, and it's just, I think it's odd for people to see me because I'm obviously, I'm 70 years old. Um, you know, the world reads me as, a, as an old white guy. Um, but... But I am very much committed to this movement. I'm very much uh, uh, supportive of it, and in Chicago, very active uh, as a supporter of it. So it's exciting. What does that movement mean to you? You know, I, as as a longtime radical revolutionary, I've always felt that what makes social change is social movements. Social change is not made because we get the right leader who has a better heart than the last leader. If you just take a quick look at history, Lyndon Johnson was not part of the black freedom movement. He was a cracker from Texas, and yet he passed the most far-reaching legislation regarding civil rights since Reconstruction. FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, wasn't part of the labor movement. He was a patrician, elite, rich person from the Hudson Valley. And Abraham Lincoln never belonged to an abolitionist party. Those three presidents are remembered for something. What are they remembered for? They're remembered for doing the right thing when a social movement exploded from below and pushed them to do the right thing. You know, you you can see some of this in the movie Selma, if you want to go back to Lyndon Johnson. I know the Lyndon Johnson fan club is all disappointed, and as I pointed out at the time, yeah, they should be. It's not historically accurate in the movie. He only uses the N-word twice. In real life, (laughs) he used it 17 times before breakfast. You know, I mean, the idea that somehow he got a bad shake. The reality is, there was fire from below, Lyndon Johnson responded to it, he was the most effective politician of his generation, and things happened, but he wasn't, King wasn't begging the great man for a meeting. Lyndon Johnson wanted to meet with King. There was a revolution in the streets, and the the man in charge had to do something about it. So that's why, to get back to where you began, To me, what I'm seeing on the street right now Mm -hmm. is young people bringing to our consciousness, the whole nation's consciousness, something that you and I know has been permanent for decades and centuries. The murder, the the serial assassination of young black people is an American tradition. So that's not what's new. And and yes, the media getting it on camera, that's somewhat new. But I reread a column that my friend Salim Muakil, who writes for In These Times in Chicago, he used to be an editor at at, uh, Muhammad Speaks. Salim wrote a column in 1980 that begins with the name of a guy killed by the police, the police said, it turns out it wasn't true. Then another guy killed by the police, the police said, the official story was, turns out it wasn't true. That's been going, and that was written 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's not new, what's new, is the fight back, and that gives me enormous confidence, happiness. I look at these young people today. I'll bring you guys into it. You, you've aged out of the youth movement in a way. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, but look, go back
3: to your high school, PG, and you will find that you are not hip. Yeah, I'm I, sorry. I know, no, about you about know. it. You I, wish I you were, there. but you're not. Because yeah, yeah. the culture keeps changing. But I'm. But I'm, I'm. saying. I'm. Look at these young people today in Chicago, in Detroit, in New York, in the Bay Area, in Atlanta, in D.C. And I'm looking at these young people, and they remind me of nothing so much as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee kids of 50 years ago. Oh, I should also say, now that I say that, 50 years ago yesterday was the first time I was arrested, um, again, opposing the war in Vietnam, sitting in at a draft board, hauled off to jail, um, so that's 50 years ago yesterday. And from that day until this, I've considered myself, you know, an activist, a revolutionary, somebody who wants to see a real transformation around two dimensions, really, or three. But but let's say where I started. Where I started was I wanted to end the war in Vietnam. And then as it deepened, I wanted to end the cause of war or the reason that this country is always in a permanent state of war. And the second thing I wanted was I wanted to throw my lot in with the Black Freedom Movement, which was shaking the country and setting the moral agenda. And so, yes, I I, I fought in the Civil Rights Movement, but I, I very much fought in, in favor of, of defeating white supremacy. It wasn't just a matter of, can we get into the club. Right, right. It was a matter of exchanging the structures. That just brings to mind an argument I was having the other day with some of my students because in our, in our vocabulary in the United States, we use the word racism to mean two distinct things. Mm-hmm. One thing we mean is bigotry and ignorance. Mm-hmm. And another thing some of us mean is the structures of white supremacy, the structures mm-hmm. of racial hierarchy. Right, and that goes back to both go back to the beginning but a lot of people especially you know liberally minded people think that the wellspring of the structural inequality is the stupid bigotry but that's not true the stupid bigotry comes f- to justify the, the structural inequality see you know what I'm saying? Like class, so, more like class, like, uh, well it's not just cl- it is race in this country one of the conundrums that, that folks have always had is how do you understand the alchemy of race and class, and it's not easy to sort out. Brilliant people like Grace Lee Boggs, who left us uh, this week at the age of 100, Uh, Grace Lee Boggs or, or Angela Davis, have tried to sort this out and have done a good job, but it's a complicated thing. But my larger point is that my students, for example, can give themselves a pass, some of them, and say, well, I'm not a racist, when what they mean by that is, I'm not Clive and Bundy, that knucklehead, you know, in seizing land in mm-hmm. in uh, Utah, or wherever he was, I'm not Donald Sterling. Mm-hmm. You know, the basketball owner. I'm not Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I don't say ignorant, bigoted things. But I've never. never used the N word mm-hmm. in my life. That's what they would say to themselves. But that doesn't mean you're free
1: right. of
3: of being implicated in the structural inequality. So Donald Sterling's a perfect example. What got him in trouble was talking to his lover on the phone and calling black people some nasty names. But what didn't get him into trouble was that he made a fortune being a slumlord in Southern California. See what I'm saying? So that's what I think is interesting. I think we've got to break that apart a little bit and say, you don't get off the hook just because you're not an ignorant bigot. Right. you got to see the reality of, and what I always tell white folks is, if you can see and understand and throw your lot against white supremacy, there's a place for you in the movement. There's a good place for you. If you can't see it, then you've got to dig a little deeper. You don't have to do this, man. So, what's the drive for? Well, I think sometimes we think the only motivation to get involved in struggle is when you yourself have been pinned to the wall. And that's not actually true. A lot of people are involved in the struggle, and they have to do it, because their humanity is at stake. Right. You know, I was having a talk with some friends the other day about this question of white allies, mm-hmm. which I sometimes object to that language, you know, the white allies of the black right, movement. I you know, because on the one hand, if, if, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, I want to be a good ally in the sense that I want to listen, and, but then I know everything, mm-hmm. either because I'm older or because I have some mm-hmm. cultural power or, or racial privilege. No, I not want to do that. I want to listen. So if you're a good ally, you want, want to listen. But there's a deeper level, and that, is, and it gets back to BG's point. The deeper level is, I don't want to think of myself as an ally. I want to think of it as my struggle. In this sense, and it's complicated, but in this sense, mm-hmm. in the sense that I'm not free if you're not free. You know, we could make it an analogy with men and women. You know, the reason feminism can be a very important movement for men mm-hmm. is because when women are equal and win their equality. We can get off of our ridiculously well-defended high horse and be happier and better and more human. Their struggles is our struggle. So you're an ally, but at the same time, you want to embrace it and say, it's my struggle. You know, who made this point brilliantly the first time I ever read it was James Baldwin. And James Baldwin, in some of his essays, would argue that um, white when black freedom is achieved, white people will be free not to be white people. Wow, what a a profound idea, you know, because it's a, it takes a lot of energy to hold on to your, you know, to kind of always be barricaded and walk down the street frightened and miserable. You know, Baldwin also said whiteness is a vulnerable idea, vulnerable in the sense that we know it's a social construction, we know it's nonsense, we also know that it's the harshest American reality. So it's both. Mm -hmm. It's a fiction, it's a fact. And so you say you didn't have to, and I want to say my humanity demanded that mm-hmm. I do it. I had to. My existential, and frankly, this is true of many, many, many struggles. You don't enter into a struggle often saying, I'm gonna win. I give you a contemporary example. We defeated the death penalty in Illinois. We defeated the death penalty. Mm-hmm. We abolished the death penalty in mm-hmm. Illinois. It was a many, many decades struggle. Mm-hmm when they executed the first man in Illinois, uh, when they reinstated the death penalty, and the first man they executed was a guy named John Wayne Gacy. You might have heard of him, he's kind of famous, but maybe not, it's a long time ago. He was a serial murderer of young men. He would pick up young men in a gay part of town and murder them and dismember them and so on. So when they finally got around to where they were going to execute him, my wife and I drew straws and I won. And I went down to Statesville. She stayed home and put the kids to bed. And I went down to Statesville to protest. Now, I didn't know what I would find. I didn't know if I would find people or not find people. So, but I was determined that the ghoulishness of what I was hearing on the radio, the joy with which AM Rock Radio was cheerleading the murder, the state murder of this guy. He's not a nice guy, but I couldn't stand to see the state murder him without me being there saying, I object. So I drive down there, middle of the night, and I get there, and there's a rock party going on. There must be 2,000 kids in pickup trucks with boom boxes and beer, and they're all there to see the monster die. You know, When the lights go down, they're going to be a big party. And I felt miserable. I felt, what a sad day for humanity. I took my little sign I made, which said, Thou shalt not kill. I hid it because I didn't want to get beat up on my way to the front of the prison. I go to the front of the prison, and I find there eight elderly nuns, myself, and two lawyers. And we got candles, and we're singing, you know, spirituals, and, and you know, we're trying to, and trying to be a force against this murder. They, they killed them. You know, we were a marginal group, and if I've ever felt marginalized in my life, and I have... I felt supremely marginalized that night. Got back to my car, disgusted, drove home. And on the way home, I had this thought: you know, um, we're we're never going to stop the death penalty in Illinois. It's too popular and it's too, you know, kind of primal. But at least I was there to say, I'm not part of that. I am not part of that. Two years later, the lawyer standing next to me won the first wrongful conviction suit. Eight years later, the governor of Illinois was persuaded to become an abolitionist, and the day before he got out of uh, he left office, the governor. And it's a, parenthetically, when you leave the governor's office in Illinois, you go straight to jail. So I mean, that's the route. That's the that's the career path. In any case, George Ryan, George Ryan, career yeah, it's a career path. George Ryan. The day before he left office. We had been organizing and organizing and organizing, getting pressure put on him a lot of different directions. He was out at breakfast uh, at a diner in Chicago, and he got a phone call on his cell phone. It was Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela said, you have the power in your hands to do the right thing. Oh, and this right-wing, corrupt, conservative governor cleared death row. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you, you just never know. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm making is that the calculus of me going down there wasn't the calculus of I'm going to win. It wasn't the calculus of my brother's on death row. It wasn't the calculus of I'm personally impacted by this. I'm impacted as a human being. And my struggle to end the death penalty puts me in you know, in solidarity with all humanity. And, you know, so I, I, I'm just saying, I don't always think that we join movements because it's going to personally, in a small, narrow, immediate sense, improve our lives. In fact it, it creates a life of struggle. Sure. But in many ways you get a lot of a lot of joy from it.
0: And that's like a conversation I was having um you know with, with my parents who kinda of come from that same that same mode <laughs> of, of, of humanity and standing up for what's right. And that I think that's the place where you where you live that is just you know being on the side of being righteous and, and standing up and, and being for those things that
3: are good for us. Globally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and in a way, I mean, I'm going to be with your, I'm going to take your parents' side um, again and again. But but to me, um, you know, that notion that you grow your soul by the choices you make. I mean, what makes an identity? Inside your own head, you're a good person. (laughs) We're all good people inside our own heads. Right, right. You know, but how do you forge an identity? Because you're also living in a world. So sometimes you have to stand up. So you started with my little T-shirt. In a funny way, getting on the airplane this morning, you know, um, I got a lot of reactions. (laughs) But I I,
2: knew who I was.
3: I knew who I was. So I had this one African-American stewardess. She couldn't have been nicer. And she leaned over and said, love your shirt. Now, she wasn't going to say it out loud in front of everybody, but she was going to say it to me somebody else was scowling at me. That's okay with me. On the plane today? Huh?
1: You say on the plane today was scowling? Yeah, on the plane. I've had a
3: lot of experiences on planes where people either recognize me or, you know, one thing or another. But today it was simply this shirt. You know, some people approve, some don't approve. But the point, the larger point I'm making is the way you form an identity is by the the steps you take. It's not by being a nice person in your head. We're all nice in our head. You can't, sit on your couch in the dorm and smoke a joint and consider yourself a moral person. Then I'm not against you sitting in your couch and smoking a joint but that's not where your humanity is most alive. That's not where your morality is tested, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Let's go back 50 years ago cuz BG had an interesting point and you and you kind of touched on it but SDS I read that it was at one of those meetings where you uh, became more radical, I guess, per se. for uh, lack like, But can you gotta take us back 50 years sure, ago?
3: Sure. I was, um,
1: I was a college student at the University
3: of Michigan in 1963. Mm-hmm. The Civil Rights Movement was at a certain point of, you know, the narrative that young people hear about the Civil Rights Movement makes it sound like uh, a very neat narrative. You know, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, but it wasn't like that, right. you know. So the fiction we tell each other, we tell young people, is that, oh, I'll tell you a funny story about this in a second, but, you know, the fiction we say is there was once a bad time in America when there was kind of an apartheid system, segregation, and there were some racists in the South. And then a savior came along and he had a dream and led a boycott and gave a speech, won a Nobel Prize, and now we're so much better. Yeah, right. Now, Now that narrative is patently false, right? I mean, that, that narrative is demonstrably wrong. The reality is the Black Freedom Movement has existed since slaves arrived on these shores and it's still going on. And yes, the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s and 70s and 50s was an important moment in that. But so was G.I.s coming home from World War II. That was an important moment in it. So was the struggle for uh, charged genocide against lynching. Which Paul Robeson and others oh, led, right. mm-hmm. you know. So it's it goes on. And if I you do. if you go if you want to see something great these days, go see um, Stanley Nelson's new film, The Black Panther Party. Yeah, oh, definitely. definitely. I, yeah, I had an opportunity to see that in Birmingham. Isn't it a great film? I mean, it's great a great film, man. and Stanley's a brilliant, you know, talented filmmaker. But but okay. So I was in college, and as I said earlier, the African American freedom movement, the Black freedom movement was defining the moral consciousness of the country. Now, most people weren't involved in it, but, but still, it was defining what it meant to be a human being, and people had to choose sides, right? And the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which were contemporaries of mine, were organizers uh, in the South um, who, who had projects all over the South. Registering people to vote was part of it, but that was just one of the many tactics that they used. And in the North, there were students who were gathering to both be supportive and to uh, be a part of this social upheaval that was happening. 1961, Students for a Democratic Society was founded as a student movement, as a student group. Mm-hmm. Uh, SNCC was, a, was a, uh, not a membership organization, it was field secretaries. SDS was a membership organization. Mm-hmm. So I joined SDS. Um, I was a community organizer in Cleveland Hmm. with SDS in a joint project with SNCC. Um, but I, but in the late, in mid late 60s, I got elected to be a national officer of SDS. Now you asked, did, did something in particular radicalize me? I was a kid from the suburbs. I was a kid of enormous privilege. I didn't know much. I grew up in kind of the, the spongy, soft, Fifties of privilege for for folks like me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know much. I go to Michigan and my eyes begin to open, and it's painful. And I'm looking and I'm seeing a world on fire. I'm seeing the hypocrisy of all the things I, I was raised with. You know, land of the free, home of the brave. But I'm seeing that played out all over the South and increasingly in the North. And then I'm seeing war here and war there, and that begins to to change my idea of what's going on
1: so I think everything's beautiful but as I open my eyes I see a world in are you are you traveling to the south during this time and seeing what's happening or or is most of this what you're seeing on TV conferences
3: well you know I was traveling around the north and I came south a couple of times for conferences but basically um I was seeing what was going on in the north so for example I uh was arrested uh I was first arrested in 1965. Uh, as I say, 50 years ago yesterday. And um, <laughs> and I didn't know much. I didn't know much. But I did know enough to say there's something deeply wrong with a big, mighty, powerful nation like this going 10,000 miles away you know, to drop bombs on a country the size of Florida. So I didn't know much. But I thought it was wrong. So I sat in and I got arrested. We copied the tactic and the, the idea from the Civil Rights Movement, right? And, um, and so I got arrested. I ended up doing 10 days in jail. At that point, 1965, mm-hmm. 80% of Americans supported the war. 80%. About 15% opposed the war. And on and my little, camp, little campus, big campus, the University of Michigan, considered in hindsight to be a hotbed of radicalism, in my campus... I would say 75% of students supported the war. So we were a tiny minority. We had a rally on campus, there were 300 of us. We marched over the draft board, 39 of us were arrested. We were surrounded by 2,000 students who wanted to see us not only arrested, but expelled. So it wasn't popular, that's the point I'm making. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that it was popular, but it was right. And so I was arrested. Three years, fast forward three years, 1968. A majority of the country is against the war. What happened? I would point to three things, although many things happened. One is that folks like me started opening our eyes. Mm-hmm. It was painful because because living you know, in your little glorious privileged blindness can be a nice, comfortable thing. Not a nice thing, but a comfortable thing. So it was folks like me organizing, and I did organize. But more important than that, the Black Freedom Movement in large part came out against the war, black people generally, but the black freedom movement. To have Muhammad Ali say, Mm -hmm. I'm not going 10,000 miles Mm -hmm. away to, you know, no Viet Cong, he said, ever called Mm me the Mm N-word. I'm not fighting in the white man's army. And now the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee issued a statement Mm -hmm. saying, we should not go 10,000 miles away to fight for a so-called freedom we don't enjoy in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. The country shook. And then to have Martin Luther King for two years, say, this war is immoral, it's illegal. And, and and again and again, his most famous speech on this was one year to the day before he was assassinated, April 4th, 1967, at Riverside Church, mm-hmm. in which he said, and by the way, if you want to get a real history lesson, you think Jeremiah Wright gave some sermons, go read Martin Luther King's sermons, America's Going to Hell, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, he was not playing. You know, he was pretty harsh,
1: yeah,
3: yeah. and so, so you go. You listen to King on April Fourth, nineteen sixty-seven, and he says, "My country is in the wrong side of the world revolution." He talks again about the three evils of racism, materialism, and militarism. He says that people who criticize him for being involved in the Vietnam War issue don't either understand him or his message. He says, "I, I the war is mine. Issue. Are you kidding? And so to have King say the greatest purveyor of violence on earth is my own country shook the country. And then the third element was veterans coming home and telling the truth. And it takes three years for Americans, it turns out, to get the truth. But vets came home, you know, famously throwing their medals at Congress, the, the bastards who'd sent them, you know, to, uh, to fight and die and kill. Uh, my brother was a deserter. My brother, my younger brother deserted and joined me and was with me underground for 11 years. But the most famous of those guys coming home was uh, the current Secretary of State, who's now himself uh, implicated in all kinds of horrible crimes against humanity. But at that point, as a 23, 24 year old coming home from Vietnam, he testified before the Senate and famously said, We commit war crimes in Vietnam every day, not as a matter of choice, but as a matter of policy. Mm. That was huge. That Mm -hmm. was profound. The country shook. The people turned against the war. We had done everything we could think of. We'd mobilized and marched. We'd been arrested multiple times. Civil disobedience. I'd spent summers going door to door in Detroit, knocking on doors, persuading people that the war was illegal and immoral. And the war ground on. So in in the spring of 1968, when when the Tet Offensive happens, which was a, a, nation, a national uprising in Vietnam, and basically the U.S. was defeated, and everybody recognized that, um, Lyndon Johnson announced he was going to leave the presidency and work for peace in Vietnam. We thought we had won. Mm-hmm. So we streamed out of our apartments in Ann Arbor and Palo Alto and Cambridge and Atlanta and Boston and in Ann Arbor, where I was, we swirled around the campus, and we landed on the steps of the president of the University of Michigan, thousands of us. And he came out. He had a bullhorn, and I had a bullhorn. I was the president of SDS, and he was the president of, of uh, the university. And I had my little pathetic bullhorn. I, I think all I did was curse into my bullhorn, because that's, uh, that's, uh, oddest, that's about, all you about, about as articulate <laughs> as I could get back then. Anyway, what he said into his bullhorn was, congratulations, he's speaking to the anti-war students. And he says to us, congratulations, you've won a great victory, now the war will end. And that night, you know, the end of, 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 April, of uh, March, 1968, he believed it and I believed it. We went home happy. And four days later, King was murdered. Mm-hmm. And two months later, Kennedy was murdered. Mm-hmm. And two months after that, Henry Kissinger emerges from whatever swamp he was dwelling in, I think it was Harvard, um, and he's got a plan quote, to end the war, but it's actually a plan to expand the war without American casualties. And that begins the air war and the naval assault on Vietnam. So what do we do? This is the question. What do we do? We've spent all this time fighting against the war. We've won. We've convinced the people. We've done what we set out to do. And the war goes on. And here's the kicker. Every week that the war goes on, 6,000 innocent people are murdered. Hmm. Every week. Not every month. Not every, and there's no end in sight. So what do you do? And I'm the middle of five children in my birth family. What do you do? One of my brothers joined the Democratic Party and tried to build a peace movement. One of my brothers deserted the army and and it was part of the Great Migration to Canada. One went to the communes to get the hell out of, and one went to the factories to try to organize the working class. And I did what I did, which is, I was part of an organization called The Weather Underground that was determined to take the war to the war makers. We considered ourselves, well, we were indeed fugitives from the law. We broke the law. We, many would say we, we broke boundaries of common sense. Um Many would say we were foolish, um, we were young, you know, and young people tend to be, you know, silly around certain things. But I'm not, and I don't even, I don't even defend everything we did, but I know that we were part of that large spectrum of trying to figure out what to do in the
1: face of genocide.
3: And we weren't, none of the five of us did the right thing, and none of the five of us was crazy.
1: I am curious. Um, to just understand at this point, what are your parents thinking? Oh, and wow. the reason I ask that question because you, you you mentioned it earlier. You come from a from a, a pretty um, proficient background. Your very dad, privileged. Yeah. very privileged background. Your dad um, is it true? His name's on one of the buildings at. At Northwestern, yeah, they named a building after him. They and, named a the uh, building after him. Yeah, I
3: went up to the dedication. That was many years after this. All that we're talking about, he was the he was the chairman of the electric monopoly, Commonwealth Edison, and he was with Edison in Chicago, and for thirty years, and he was um, a very powerful businessman in Chicago, and he, and uh, just to jump around a little, but the last five years of his life, he lived with me and my wife. Um, he had Alzheimer's and we took care of him. So, you know, you can reconcile with the with your family, with your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the funny thing about my dad is towards the end of his life, even before he got dementia, he was a big defender of mine. But that's it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is it's easy to say see what you would have done in retrospect. I mean, everybody you know. Would have been marching at the front line with King, or during the days of slavery, everybody you know would have been right. running away right. and joining right. John Brown. It doesn't quite work like that. that, but in in retrospect, everybody's on the right side, you know. Once the issue is resolved, so my dad was my dad and I reconciled in that regard, mm-hmm. and he. But he knew and always knew that I was a radical and that I was a socialist and that you know I I I don't think that. Uh, we ever saw eye to eye politically. But in those years, especially when I was the head of... S- one of right. the leaders of SDS, which was based in Chicago, uh, he, he both found... Uh, I would say he found my political involvement uh, uh, you know, unbelievable. I mean, because he had no framework to understand why you would involve yourself in this stuff. He thought of himself as a good person. As a businessman... He, uh, you know, he was involved in affirmative action. In fact, when King came to Chicago, my father was one of the two negotiators between King and the Daly administration because he was a prominent businessman who had liberal tendencies. Mm -hmm. But he would be, I'd see him on the news negotiating um, these meetings with the real estate board. Meanwhile, I'd be out in the streets in Cicero with the, in the marches you know so <laughs> we're the same family different you know different uh, thinking and different ideas and different life experience but at that time I think my parents were uh, frantic for me not That's to right. go down mm-hmm. not to go down the the uh, uh, the tubes and yet we did we went underground and when we surfaced uh, 11 years later uh, in a funny way both my wife's parents my wife's parents were lower middle class Jewish you know, immigrants and and uh, and they uh, their first comment to us was, uh, "Are you married?" Which we thought was kind of bizarre. <laughs> like uh, wow. that's that's what you're worried about. And my dad's first comment was that he thought I needed a haircut. Well, you know, this is I, I want to say, Dad, I've been I've been fighting the state for 11 years, and I've been charged with all these crimes, and you're worried about my haircut. Okay. <laughs> Parents are parents, you know, they can't stop themselves sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I think he was very worried about me that in well those years. Uh, but he never, uh, frankly, i got to get that, it to him. He never betrayed me in, in, a, in a profound, fundamental sense. He never said, he, he thought we were off the deep end, but he didn't think that we were, um, that we were completely crazy either. And the 60s definitely kind of go
0: down as this moment that, like, the country just hit this boiling point on all levels, the black freedom movement, um,
3: anti-war, and all of these things. And feminist movement, and and cultural upheaval, and music was changing, and art was changing. It was a very Mm -hmm. exciting time in in many ways. Mm -hmm. The only thing I I would add to that, though, PG, is that I... I think we make a fetish out of thinking of, in terms of decades. Nobody lives by decades, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like I, I, don't single single I don't remember December 31st, 1969, <laughs> looking at my watch and say, oh shit, it's almost over.
1: The
3: 50s bleed into the 60s. Into yeah, yeah. In fact, one, one of the things we know, I mean, you, you, you have an interest in the kind of history of slavery. One of the things we know about slavery is the afterlife of slavery is still with us. Oh, it's, not like, it's not like Definitely. abolition. Now we're in a different world. It was different, and it was importantly different, but it wasn't so different that they you didn't recognize. And so we're still with the afterlife of slavery, and the 60s, was Rosa Parks part of the 60s? That was the 50s. Yes, she was part of the 60s. And was the gay movement part of the 60s? Well, it was the 70s, but still, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know. So I'm just saying we don't want to fetishize... What's basically? I, I sometimes think the '60s is is commodified and sold back to us as myth and symbol. And I don't feel it that way. I feel like when people think of me as a person from the '60s, I say, yeah, but I'm also of the right now. And and whatever the mm-hmm. '60s was in your mind, right now. And I want to be there. So when we, when you guys construct the bar, I'll bring my walker right over to the barricades and hurl it on. Me. So so in that right now, do you remember like being afraid?
1: Yeah, careful mm-hmm.
0: concerned, because you were, you were standing out there, and a lot of what you
3: were standing for was, was at the time. Stanley Nelson movie about the Black Panthers. Remember the siege of the L.A., the Los Angeles Panther office? Okay. Mm-hmm. I was very close uh, when Fred Hampton was murdered. Our office was right down the street from his office. And and Fred's assassination was um, a very serious life-turning moment for us. Four days later, the L.A. Panthers are... are um, The Siege of the L.A. Panther Office Goes On. And when I saw it again on the film, it all came back to me vividly and viscerally. It was hard. But one of the things I'm drawing your attention to, your memory, you haven't seen that. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, they they interviewed two survivors, both of whom have now passed away. Stanley's interviewing about the siege, and they're describing the siege, and you're seeing visuals, and they're barricaded in the office. And so the most astonishing thing, you talk about existential reality, a moment for a human being. This guy, Farr, describes being in this room. They try to come in, and bam, 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 he drives them out. And then he says, I did. And for those three hours, I was a free Negro. Hmm, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I was yeah. faint as sense that. Hmm. You know, when you feel free, it's a paradox. You know, we walk down the street, we don't exactly feel free, we're just walking down the street, right? right. right? You smoke a joint, you don't feel free, right. you're just smoking a joint. But when you feel back, like back you're moment. on a barricade, Metaphorically, right. really. Free to choose who to be. If I chose to be in that room. And of course, for those three hours, that I was a so free Right. Damn. And Stanley said, you know, during the making of that complicated movie, complicated story to tell, he said, whenever I'd get a little lost, a little confused, and not certain where to go, I'd put that up on the editing machine. I'd watch him say that. Hmm. And it inspired me you know, to go on and keep Get making on. the film. Man. Isn't
0: that beautiful? It is. I mean, I yeah. And saying it and, and really putting into perspective,
3: what was going on in that moment? You know, so That's we were I mean. underground, on the run from the FBI. We would go into a rural post office. We would see our pictures up there, oh, you know, on our wanted posters. And this went on, and my wife was on the 10 Most Wanted list with Angela Davis and Rap Brown and you know, and it was it was intense. They were after us, and it's always said, armed and dangerous. You know, so we were being set up. You know, we were being set up. If you if you see us, if you see shoot us. us, shoot us you know, they're armed yeah, yeah. And, and and so did it feel scary? You bet. But did it feel free? It felt free. It felt like you know. And I don't know if you if if you go back and listen to some of Bernadine's um, communiques. I mean, I think she is embarrassed to some extent, and thinks that the rhetoric got ahead of us. And but the rhetoric does get ahead of you. You know, the Panther rhetoric oh, right. was ahead of them, and so on. But the first communique from the Weather Underground ends with her saying something like, "Don't look for us, pig, because we see you," or something like yeah, that. Absolutely. you know. And it's the rhetoric is way inflated, but it reflects that sense that we were free. You can't find us, you know. And so yes, we were scared. One of the things that made us, that allowed us to survive for 11 years, two things to mention. One is that nobody wanted us arrested. I was recognized every week on the street by somebody. Why would you want me arrested if you were part of the youth? You you know, I'm, I'm going down the street in Northern California, and somebody, you know, sees me. And they know who I am. But they're not going to turn me in because they have no interest in me being turned in. We're on the same side. So we're like fish in the sea. We're not... And I would be driving through uh, San Francisco and I'd see a big picture of my wife's water poster in somebody's window. And it would say, Bernadine Dorn, welcome here. Or another one, Angela Davis, welcome here. Right? Asada Shakur now, mm-hmm. welcome here. And so you're like a fish in the sea. That's one reason we survive. And the second, I think, is that we... Made a choice to stop gut-checking each other and to trust each other. What I mean by that is, instead of saying "Are you brave enough to do this?" we would say, "How you feeling?" And if you said, "I'm scared," we'd say, "I'm scared too." You know, and and that meant that instead that we were more real with each other. So we were real with each other, and the community had our back, and we survived for eleven years.
1: Well, so let's go back. Can you explain? the the, the creation of Weather Underground and how you guys broke off from SDS. You were one of the founders of Weather Underground. Um, Can you kind of elaborate on that? Well, the the way that the breakup happened is I I told you that,
3: you know, we had reached a point, um, uh, again, the serial assassination of black leaders, King, Hampton, Mm -hmm. Malcolm X. Um, Then the Panthers... um, The Panthers in New York and the Panthers in L.A. And it was coming to be a regular kind of thing, right? And supporting them and helping them not to be assassinated was a complicated set of challenges. And the war was dragging on and 6,000 people a week were being murdered. So what do you do? And within SDS, the political arguments became very intense. And frankly, the black movement, the student movement, the anti-war movement... All experience splits. I could tell you the minutiae mm-hmm. of our split, but I think the larger mm-hmm. point is that people didn't know the right way forward, and we had won certain concessions, the Voting Rights Act for example, um, you know, uh, certain you know certain decisions, um, mm-hmm. and people didn't, and, and we won the country over to believe the war was wrong and, and they were supposedly negotiating to end the war, but it kept 6,000 people a week, kept being killed. So nobody knew the way forward and that creates tensions within a movement and of course the FBI was moving as you saw in the Panther film, very aggressively to say, to, to sow discontent, you know, so that they would have the Eldridge Cleaver people being propagandized against the Huey Newton people and vice versa. They were moving, they were manipulating, they were you know um doing terrible terrible things like that but all that said i think the deepest reason that these splits happened was that no one knew the way forward we decided a small group of us who happened to be in the leadership or part of the leadership of SDS decided that we had to find a way to effectively to effectively resist the murderous assault on vietnam and on the black movement mm-hmm. and we had to find a way to survive what we saw as an impending American fascism. That's how we saw it. We saw fascism growing, the, the assassination of Fred being mm-hmm. the clearest thing. You know, we knew something. and You will find this familiar. Fred Hampton is assassinated, mm-hmm. right? And the news reports for the next week are that the Panthers, they were just being served as a, a summons. And the Panthers started shooting. And it takes three or four years for a legal decision to come and for an investigation to happen independently that awards uh, Mrs. Hampton, you know, a million and a half dollars because they clearly went in and Mm -hmm. said they drugged him. Then they went and assassinated him. So they claimed it was a shootout. It wasn't a shootout. Mm -hmm. It was an assassination. Well, the same kind of stuff was happening over and over. So we said we have to survive this coming you know, uh, repression. Mm-hmm. We have to survive it. And we can't fight if either we're all dead or if we spend all of our time in defense committees with lawyers, you know, raising money for to defend right. ourselves. Right. We saw that as a pattern that was part of the repression. It wasn't it wasn't like the, the 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 legal repression was kind of somehow the nice side. It was better I suppose than killing people, but it killed you anyway, because They tied you up for years and years and all your resources. And we said, we're not going to do that. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to create an underground organization. And we began to create it. And we began to develop networks of safe houses and false identification papers. And we began to learn the craft of being underground. And just as we were beginning to learn it, there was an accidental explosion Mm -hmm. in New York City. My girlfriend at the time... Mm -hmm was killed, my best friend was killed, uh, Ted Gold, Diana Outen, Terry Robbins were killed. And then we all went underground spontaneously. Mm-hmm. We, didn't, we didn't plan to do it that way. Our plan was to do it much more uh, subtly, but we couldn't do it subtly because it it happened that... And so we were all indicted. We were indicted on conspiracy across state lines, the Rap Brown indictment, conspiracy across state lines to destroy government property and conspiracy to cross state lines to cause civil disturbance. And we were all indicted. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, we're not gonna show up. And at that point, we were dubbed in the weather underground.
1: To, to, to our listeners, there is a book um, that you can actually go out and purchase, uh, uh, Fugitive Days, um, that Mr. Ayers actually, he wrote and he talks about a lot of this in in that book. You know the the story you just told about the the, the, the accidental bombing and and um, and those type of stories that occurred are covered in 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 that book. So I do recommend that you go out and really do some research and really read that story because it, it's very fascinating. And, and we're getting the one-on-one level right now, but it actually goes into detail more detail. Um, for some of the different other bombings that, that occurred, um, I mean, at a high level, then we can move on to the 2008 co- controversy. Yeah, let's do that. Although, I'll just say, you know, we are interested, <laughs> but but just could, can you just briefly, if you don't mind, sure. just talk about some of the some of the bombings that the Weather Underground was. Um... You know, we were we were. Uh, it, this is another fascinating
3: thing to think of locating this in a social upheaval. Because for three years, from 1970 to 1973, there were, according to the um, FBI and the uh, and the Treasury Department, there were something like 25 or 30,000 anti-government bombings, anti-police, anti. How many? Thirty thousand. Wow. The Weather Underground took credit for 24. (laughs) <laughs> so somebody, so, somebody else. I'm, somebody I'm, trying, else will I'm trying to just locate it, you know. Right. What I'm saying is that the resistance to police repression right. and the resistance to right. this war—it wasn't on campuses, off campuses. Took and what made us become notorious, I suppose, or prominent, is that we were well-known student leaders, and we were—we liked to yak, we liked to talk, and this so stuff just went up, you know. just an ROTC building burned. But whenever we did anything, we had to yak about it, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So from our perspective, what we were doing was we were trying to educate people. We were trying to issue a screaming response to genocide, and we were trying to educate people about it. So for us, the communiques were very important. Uh, we issued a, a it was a hundred and three and long, saying politics, anti-racist politics matter, and why we should all join the struggle. I think we were more propagandists than we were anything else. But frankly, that's the way struggles are. Even Mm -hmm. when you are involved in armed struggle, uh, the struggle is mainly an attempt to communicate. Mm -hmm. And and so we never thought for a minute that our little peace shooters could go up up against U.S. imperialism and win. That wasn't the point. The point was to persuade lots and lots of people um, that we were on the right side and that they should join that side, the side against, against foreign wars the, the side against invasions and occupations, the side against white supremacy—that was our message. So, yeah, we did, and then prominently. Okay, I'll just tell you very, very quickly <laughs> that we were, um, we were, I suppose, best known for uh, bombing the Pentagon, mm-hmm. the Capitol, um, the, the New York State Office of Prisons after the Attica uprising, the California Office of State Prisons after the murder of George Jackson. So, these were things that we were known for, mm-hmm. but that wasn't our main work, that was a sometimes thing. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and we're talking about like social movements, um, people organizing, groups coming together, um, with, with, with focus initiatives and, and agendas, and, and with some of the obstacles and barriers that you talked about in the past, they still are in our face today. Absolutely, um, and so there is still a need for you know, social action, organization, and all those type of things. Do you think that our organizing mm-hmm. and our and and our um, mm-hmm. groups now um, have what it takes to really push forward, considering things of uh, media, the way that we we use so much media ourselves, social media, um, and I guess with it being so good? Sometimes it can be bad and overused, um, and then just with mass media and how it paints certain pictures. Do you feel that we can have some of those same type of advancements or successes that you want to put? Even with way? those
1: networks, like you were able to build those networks, those safe houses, etc. Is that is that type of organization to be, piggyback off BG's question? Is that is that even possible today? I don't know. Um, I you know I'm much more.
3: Interested in learning from you about what's going on than I am in telling anybody what to do. But I'll tell you this: there's a rhythm to activism, and and I, I, you know, I have my Twitter account, I do, I blog, and I, you know, like most people my age who are digital immigrants, I speak with a heavy accent, and uh, and if I ever get in trouble, I always ask a ten-year-old
1: how to solve my problem, you know, because old people don't get it naturally, you
3: know. You know what I'm saying, or? but
1: but I guess it's more or less not from a technology perspective, but more or less from the collective right unison, unification that that you all had the well, bond that-, that you that you all had the the weather of the ground and even um, I, I believe I read I heard an interview you were familiar me with the. Whether what was it the Panther Twenty One and yeah. even being able to work with those groups, sure, um, There was a different type of bond back during that time. Do you have that? Do you do you sense that same type of unity today in, in, the, in like, the universe?
3: In a way, I do, and uh-huh. I'm, I don't want to get lost. Does that, in that make sense? What I'm asking? It yeah. does. It does,
1: okay. and and
3: and I just. Two quick things before I before I tell you what I really think we need to do. One, but one one <laughs> is I want to remind you that I do not glorify the sixties. So, so when you say you had this, you had that, uh, be a little suspicious about that. We didn't have that together. We kids <laughs> okay. today are yeah, yeah, smarter yeah. than we ever okay. were. Okay, um, they they're more aware of the Definitely. world than we were. Right. I mean, we were idiots in a lot of ways, just like mm-hmm. everybody. And whatever we were doing, it was you know we saw. A quarter of inch of reality. We didn't see all of that. And I I worry that we get glorified or in two ways. One is some people say, ah, the 60s, I was born in the wrong decade. That's nonsense. (laughs) Other people like John McCain think the 60s was the devil's own workshop. It wasn't that either. It was a mixture of mishmash of this and that. But I think there's a, there's a, a responsibility that we have when we're, when we're thinking of ourselves as building social movements. And it always follows the same rhythm. Um, and I see it very hopefully today Uh, let let me say before you even say what that rhythm is I think what makes me hopeful is that you can put a pillow over a man's head for just so long and eventually he'll fight back Mm -hmm. he will not be suffocated without fighting back and that pillow is being put over a lot of our heads and I see people pushing back and the Black Lives Matter thing is part of that the Arab Spring very exciting Occupy was exciting Mm -hmm. to me uh, was it everything no was it I, I get i get irritated with old people who are impatient with things like occupy like what you thought there were pitch tents in wall street no that wasn't it was never on the agenda that wasn't what they were doing but did they look at just i'm gonna take occupy for one second they changed the conversation in this country. Right, Nobody ever said the 99% before Occupy. These tax income inequality, that was Occupy. Mm-hmm. Now it's mainstream. We're all mm-hmm. talking about it. Of course, they're trying to co-opt it. But here's how they respond, how power responds to Occupy, to Black Lives Matter, to any social movement, feminism, anything. They always respond the same way. They ignore it. They ridicule it. Mm-hmm. They beat the crap out of it. And, and, and or they try to co-opt it. Then they beat the crap out of it and then they start over try to ignore it try to ridicule it try to co-opt it then beat it up and 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 then you you know and then you got to start over um, so i i think the response of power to black lives matter we should never contribute to either ignoring it or ridiculing it or calling it out for its shortcomings or try to co-opt it it's a very exciting movement from below. Uh-huh. That's what changes the world. Here's what I think we all have to do. There's a rhythm to activism, and there's a rhythm to being a good citizen. There's a rhythm to being a moral person. And it always starts with opening your eyes. You cannot act morally or responsibly with your eyes firmly closed. You have to try to see the world as it is. You know, I remember I remember when my mother was I was taking care of my mom thirty years ago. She'd broken her ankle and And she said to me one day, uh, it was around the time of the, uh, uh, it was around the time when climate change was first being discussed before y'all were born. And my mom says to me, what's this thing I hear about global warming? Mm -hmm. And I say to her, I give her a real short response. I don't want to scare the shit out of the old lady. So I give her a real calm response. (laughs) And she looks at me kind of angrily and she says, well, I'm sorry I asked. I'm sorry I asked. Of course, because when you asked, I told you. And when I told you, you feel you compelled feel, uh, to do something. Yeah. And in your little privileged little suburban heaven, you got a swimming pool, you got, you know, the lawn is watered by illegal immigrants. You know, I mean, in other <laughs> words, why should you worry? Right. Yeah, My point is, you've got to open your eyes. You cannot be blind and be moral or activist. Second thing you gotta do is be astonished, and this is sometimes harder. You have to be astonished at both the beauty and the ecstasy and the greatness of things like kids coming together in Black Lives Matter. You've got to be astonished at that. You also have to and you gotta be astonished at the corruption and rottenness of the of the system. And if you get jaded, you won't be astonished. Mm-hmm. Oh well that's the way they are they it's steal. To, yeah. No no you should be pissed off every time they steal from us. Every time. So we shouldn't just say, oh Volkswagen's pl- polluting the world. Oh, oh that's business you no it's not. We're angry about it. And the fact that others are doing it, I'm we're angry right. about that too. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of be astonished. Mm -hmm. you got to be angry a little bit. And then you have to act. You have to do something. Mm -hmm. And my students say, when I hear you talk, I feel like I have to do everything. And my response is always, you don't have to do everything. In a world as out of balance as this, do anything. Anything you do. And then connect it to somebody else's anything. And then we're rolling. So you open your eyes. You're astonished. You act. And this is where the weather underground went off the tracks. You then doubt. You have to question yourself. Was it right? Did I do a good job? Could I have done better? Is there another way to look at it? If you don't doubt, you become dogmatic. If you become dogmatic, you don't think. And dogma is the enemy of thought. So that's my rhythm for, for how I think about it. And I think that I think that if you do that every day, if you repeat for a lifetime, opening my eyes again and again and again, not once, and getting it right and then automatic pilot. Every day it's changing. You're learning more. You're reading more. You're studying more, and then you
1: and then you act, and then you doubt. When you talk about opening your eyes, you're saying that individual needs to open their eyes, right? Because I can't make person X open their eyes to see the relevance in in this particular issue, or what have you. Yeah, you because, can.
3: You can, and you can't. You okay. can, and you can't. You can't in the sense that you can't make them, but you can in the sense that you. You know, one of the things about my early activism, you were asking about my family and stuff, I got to say, I I influenced my aunts and uncles and cousins oh, because gotcha. they watched me and they said, what the oh, hell is Bill he doing? doing? You know, and I think gotcha. that what you do is a kind of education gotcha. and you have to be willing to talk to people, to dialogue with people. And dialogue is a great, great kind of medium for education because dialogue assumes that I'm going to speak With the possibility of you hearing me, but I'm gonna listen with the possibility of you changing me, even subtly. And I think that's what it means to be alive. So you have to kind of think, and and a good thing, a good test of this is have you learned an important lesson in the last year? Could you articulate that lesson? We should be learning important lessons every day. We should be reading things that change us or who challenge us, right? So I I assume you guys have read Tanahasi Coates' book. I, I gotta say, I learned something from me. I learned a lot from me in that book. He's <laughs> um, a young guy, you know. Oh yeah. He, <laughs> he just was, got
1: the. He, did you hear? He just won the uh, the MacArthur, war. The MacArthur
3: Award. That was some week for him. He's on the cover of. He was on the cover of of uh, Harper's uh yeah. the Atlantic. Um, he had a cover story. In the New York Times, he's the number one bestseller of the New York yeah. Times. Anyone with a genius nice. grant? Well, hell, you know. Um, and we're trying to get him on the free line. Well, you, you should tell him your, your, your uh, genius grant is pending. Tell him that uh, yours is
1: coming it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever work. We you know, Stanley Nelson got a genius grant too several years ago. Oh. Yeah. So so I know we're approaching our hours. So I, I do want to kind of move this uh, move this a little bit further ahead and. I wanted to get to something that BG opened up with earlier. Um, you kind of, I don't, I, I, and maybe this isn't true. You tell me otherwise. Uh, but I, I'll use the word. You faded to black until two thousand and eight. Um, after the the uh, after the weather underground kind of went its course, then you kind of faded to to black, so to speak. Um, and you can like correct it. me
2: <laughs> if I'm wrong, but figurative it it
1: living like a good metaphor. Uh, uh, but in 2008, um, your name became very. How, it was spoken a lot during the Democratic primaries. Can you kind of talk about that incident, what it did for you? But also, I want to—I do want to start off with the question: Do you yeah. have a relation? Did you have a relationship with President Obama? Yeah, you know,
3: uh, I'll tell you, I tell you that we lived in the same neighborhood. We were on. Oh, right, 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 right. right. We were, uh, he lives two blocks from me. Is that
1: is that the neighborhood where uh, Donald Lewis Farrakhan house is? Yeah,
3: I live. My my house is two blocks from Farrakhan's house. Oh, yeah, two blocks from Obama's house. Three blocks from Jesse Jackson. Mm-hmm. Four blocks from
1: Gwendolyn Hyde Park, Park. Park. Hyde Park, uh, Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. I've been I was, over. I
3: always used to say to Bernadine, "I live in the safest house in the in the country because I got." The Fruit of Islam, Garden yes. the North Side. I got the, I got the Green Zone over here. i got the Chicago surveillance over there. And she always says to me, if you get mugged, nobody's going to give a shit. They're you know? <laughs> no, all going to laugh. Uh, but, but, but yes, I... I. Uh, here's what happened in 2008. I'll tell you quickly, and then I'll tell you my relationship with the president. But um, I had my students. I, I, I'm a professor. I was a professor. I still am, uh, but retired. Um so I had my doctoral students over to the house for potluck, which I often do. Mm-hmm. So I had 15 students in the living room. It was April of uh, 2008. And um, uh, there was one of the debates going on. It was between Clinton and Obama. Mm-hmm. And George Stephanopoulos was making a mess of things. And we had our <laughs> seminar. And somebody turned on the TV as the seminar ended. And it was right at the point when George Stephanopoulos says to Obama, what about your relationship with this fiery preacher? Jeremiah Wright, mm-hmm. and he, you know, is what about that? And Obama tries to explain it, and he says, and what about this other character? This um, he says, uh, Bill Harris. He, uh, you know, he claims to bomb the Pentagon, and you, you have a relationship with him, and um, he's never apologized. What's that like? And Obama said, you know, he's a guy around the neighborhood. He's a he's an English professor, something like that. He he. he he said he's an English professor, which isn't what I am. But that's okay. no. uh, You're an cool. you know, um, so, so my students literally fell on the ground. I mean, some of them literally, like... And one student turned to me and said, my God, that guy's got the same name as you. And somebody, somebody else explained to her, it's because we were the same guy. And I was the guy around the neighborhood. It was quite surreal. And suddenly, broadcasting in our little living room all across the country and the world you know, I'm pulled into this as this shady character. But here's what was happening. And it's important to remember, there was Hillary Clinton who did this. It wasn't Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin and John McCain picked up the narrative. but The narrative that Clinton figured out was nobody could figure out how to run against this very charismatic, really smart, um, you know, kind of winning young politician. How do you run against them? So Clinton's strategy was simple. I'd, we don't. She says we don't know anything about him, but we know he's got some shady friends. Look, he's got a black nationalist preacher. He's got a terrorist. He's got a Palestinian scholar. He's got you know a left wing priest. And it's true. We all knew each other in Hyde Park. Um, but as I said at the time, and many times after, um, I knew Obama. You know, we we never saw each other. You know, allied politically. But we knew each other as guys around the neighborhood. I saw him all the time. You know, his kids and my kids saw each other. So, it wasn't that strange. And what the the attempt to make it into a big thing is typical of kind of American political chatter because the fact is that the fact that Obama knows lots of people, the fact that he talks to lots of people should not be a sin. Mm. It should be a a virtue, right? But they tried to turn it into a sin. The reality is that Barack has always been what he said he was. I'm a middle of the road, mainstream, you know, slightly progressive politician. The right wing looked at him and said, no, he, he, he's a secret Muslim, secret socialist, palling around with terrorists, black nationalists. And the left looked at him and said, I think he's winking at me. But he wasn't winking. He is a middle of the road politician. He had a record in Illinois. Remember me telling you about the death penalty? Mm-hmm. Governor Ryan was an abolitionist, Barack was still trying to find a compromise. So mm-hmm. that's who he is. Is he a smart guy? Smartest guy I've ever met. Is he compassionate, lovely, decent person? Is he a good papa? He is. Mm-hmm. So all that's true. But he also doesn't mm-hmm. share my politics. And he wouldn't share my politics. You talk about educational reform. I'm 180 degrees away from it. The Obama administration on what I think should be happening in schools. So yes, we knew each other, but it, and I was we served on two boards together, um, but that's because we're both Chicagoans and we're both you know involved in social issues. But
1: well, that's a good
0: alley for your your perspective um, on education. Yep.
1: Very, where right. it is now. Well, for- well, I want to ask you a qu- specific sure. question to that, and you can and you can probably expound. It's Common Core the answer?
3: No Common Core is not the answer the The real problem that we face in education nationally in national educational policy is that this issue has been framed by power to be to, to, to say that there are two kind of sides in the education debate. On one side is the corporate reformers. they call themselves the revolutionaries. you know they're the reformers, and they want charter schools and vouchers, kill the teachers' union, um, reduce education to a standardized test, to to a single metric on a standardized test score. And then the way that power frames it is the other side, the liberals are defending the teachers' union and defending the status quo. That that dichotomy is wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not even close to true. What what we really need in this country, and and it's completely within our grasp, we need to reframe the debate and we need to say, instead of saying... um, some these small things like we need more charters. We need to say education needs generous funding. We need we need um, you know what the, what the most powerful people and the most privileged people have for their kids should be the standard by which we want mm-hmm. to aspire for our kids. Mm-hmm. So for example I agree. Just so like that, for example, Mayor Daly, mm-hmm. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama, Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, and me, sent our kids to the University of Chicago Laboratory School. What do they get at the University of Chicago Laboratory School? Class size capped at 18, an organized teachers union which is respected and and negotiated with. Um, no reliance on test scores. They don't they take a third of the tests at that school that they take in the Chicago public schools. Abundant art programs. These this is and then the schools that Arnie Duncan and company are promoting don't have arts programs, don't have libraries, don't have a curriculum based in part on asking your own questions. They would never send their kids to the schools they advocate. They right. would never mm-hmm. send mm-hmm. their so So, where does Barack Obama's kids go now? Sidwell Friends. Right. It's a lovely school. Mm-hmm. Why is that not the model for model what we're building for what we, instead of? And so, we talk about parent choice, but in Chicago, what parental choice means uh, uh, an analogy. You want to choose between having an apartment with no heater or an apartment with no doors and windows. I mean, that's no choice at all. That's the choice they're giving kids in Chicago. You can go to DuSable High School, mm-hmm. or you can go to this charter school, which has doubled down on all the reasons DuSable failed. So it's more drill and kill, more you know, more uh, zero tolerance, more you know. And so instead of engaging the kids the way Barack Obama's kids are engaged or Artie Duncan's kids are engaged. Mm-hmm. How can we listen to Arnie Duncan say, this is good for your kids? Oh, but for my little darlings, it's over here. Take one quick example. And, and incidentally, every time something happens in Chicago that I find reactionary in the schools, I always go to the lab school and ask what they do. It's two simple examples. Uh, the Chicago Public Schools banned a graphic novel called Persepolis mm-hmm. about the Iranian Revolution, one of my favorite comic books. They banned it. So I go over to lab school. I say, do you guys have Persepolis? The librarian tells me she has nine copies, two in the original French. They have the movie. I say, do the kids read it? Yeah, the seventh graders are all required to read it. So the privileged kids get real art and real literature. The kids in the Chicago public schools get one more hour of drill and skill. That's <laughs> the discrepancy that we should not allow. When, when they passed the law in Illinois that 30% of a teacher's evaluation, the Chicago Public Schools were based on test scores of their students. I went over to the Lab School, had a meeting with the director and with the um, and with the head of the union. We talked about how they evaluate teachers and how they develop teachers. We had a two-hour conversation. I won't tell you the whole conversation; it's too long. Except to say, at the end of it, I say to them, "What part do standardized test scores play in teacher evaluation?" And they looked at me like I was from Mars, and they said. What does standardized test scores have to do with good teaching? <laughs> exactly. Well put, and why do you let them get away with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the privileged have no interest in, in fighting it, but to me, the, hip, the gross hypocrisy of, of, of the man who's holding the whip hand on educational policy nationally, telling us what we should do for poor kids, what he would never allow it for his own kids, ought to be something we expose.
1: I, I have a friend that works, and this is, this, is something, this is a topic for me, and I know we're, we're running out of time, but this is a topic for me that is, education is extremely important to me. I have a friend that works in the D.C. public school system, and they had a meeting, and I want to get your, and the reason I'm asking yeah. this is I want to sure. your, your, your how should this be handled or what can we do. But they had a meeting, um, the teachers and administration basically had a meeting that said the administration told the teachers they have too many discipline (laughs) write-ups. So saying that they had rolled up over, they had rolled up the students over 200 times and that if they continue to write the students up, then they're going to be, then the administration is going to write the teachers up, basically trying to put the blame on the teachers and saying, hey, you need to be more disciplinary rather than seeing the big issue is that of the entire landscape at the school and the administration is more of a top down versus sure. bottom up issue. And so now the administration is trying was trying to put the blame on on the teachers versus saying, hey, we have a, a serious discipline problem at the school. Let's find a root cause and address it what would you tell a struggling teacher or how can a struggling teacher that deals with that type of problem where they're not getting help from the administration um, for the discipline problems but then they're having to try to deal with more discipline rather than being able to educate the students because of the time spent disciplining the students you know it's such a huge question it goes in every direction and i can't <laughs> have you heard that have you heard of that
3: oh yeah that I of not only have i heard about it but you know, when you say Washington, D.C., I immediately think of Michelle Ree, who was the CEO who was famous for closing schools and firing teachers and all this. She also cheated on the standardized tests. She also sends her kids to a private school. So, you know, they, these people get away with murder. It's kind of crazy. But in this, the, 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 the challenge for teachers in, at all times is to see the students for who they really are and to work together as a collective and not to rely on the administration to do the right thing. But I want to make a prediction. As soon as they call you in and say, we need to get the write-ups down, the write-ups will go down. Mm-hmm. And this is because, this is a little paradox, I'm going to tell you, that it has everything to do with school reform. A performance metric only works as a performance metric if it's not used as a performance metric. Let me explain. Say that one more time. A performance metric only works as a performance metric if it's not used as a performance metric.
1: Gotcha. So you put. Oh, so ah. That, that makes sense. So here's what you do. That makes you a lot say, of you sense. You say,
3: uh, I'm, the universe that I'm interested in is survival after surgery. That's mm-hmm. the universe. But I give you a performance metric. Let's see who stays alive for 30 days after mm-hmm. surgery. Mm-hmm. You go to Presbyterian Hospital. Everyone stays alive for 31 days. Right. Why? Because they can put them on machines and keep them going right. for 31 days, and then they pass. So the performance metric is not they making it, to, it a better hospital. Right. Oh, so you say uh, the, 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 in Russia you say mm-hmm. traffic fatalities will be counted no longer as five days; they'll be counted as 10 days. Traffic fatalities just went down. Right. And, you know, 10 days after that. So the point is, and this is what we do in schools: we say this test score. Has everything to do with whether you're going to keep your job, with whether your school's going to get funded, with whether your state's going to get funded, whether Ernie Duncan's going to give you a grant like he's some petty foundation officer instead of the secretary of education for all the children. Okay, you get a good thing on it. And guess what's going to happen? Your test scores are going to go up. And guess what else is going to happen? You're going to cheat. You're going to lie. You're going to steal. It happened in Atlanta. It happened in D.C. It happened in the privileged community of Lake Forest, Illinois. You have incentivized cheating by making... And so here's a great example. There's a school in Chicago called Urban Prep. They want to say they're a good school. We're a good school. And what's the performance metric? 100% to college. They do two things. They push out the kids who aren't going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And then they call college (laughs) anything you can think of, Mm -hmm. right? So they get 100% to college. Mm -hmm. But does that make it a good school? Not really. Mm -hmm. But they've, they've... So they've conflated the universe with the performance metric. Mm. Don't ever get swindled
1: by that kind of crap. We got We got to have him back. For, <laughs> we got to have you back just yeah. for... Let's just meet,
3: for, Let's meet right here in this conference room. <laughs> no, nah, we got to have
1: you back just for education reform. I, I because we do. definitely need to. Because I think we touched on a lot of things. And we really wanted to introduce this audience to, to who you were. And also to the role that you played in... In uh, just in American history with the Weather Underground, et cetera. but there's a larger conversation that we even want to have, that I would like to have, and it's really around education reform. I think that'd be
3: great. I was just at I was just at Yale University debating uh, the question of. Uh... I saw that. It's oh, on yeah. YouTube. I, is it? Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Oh man, what a debate! And I literally can't. I well, struggled. You know, it kind of kills me, these privileged kids. You know, this kid, well scrubbed, he gets up and he says, you're acting as if the point of education is social justice or social uplift. The point of education is to train the elite to run the rest of the country. Yeah, that's your view when you go to Yale. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So and that's what
1: I'm saying. So let's do it. We'll do, let's it. do it. Let's do it. So thank you, really Bill, for joining that. us. I know you have some other endeavors and we want to make sure so we you out there. But um, if you take us up on that offer, we do want to schedule... A podcast in the near future or so to talk about education, but I want to bring actual teachers some kind of way. Get some teachers. Oh yeah, that'd to, be awesome. To come Actually, and participate. if you
3: guys want to come to Chicago, we could have a great time. You have to bring your girlfriend. Um, you hear me, Yeah, I Yeah, Um
1: You know, and
3: and uh, and we'll go we'll go see the city. And we'll get some teachers
1: and have a conversation. That'd yeah, we yeah, we need to do that. So we need to we'll we'll, we'll we'll figure out figure that out and work it out. So how can the people if they're interested in, in getting to know more about you? How can they reach you or learn more about you? And you know, yeah. I've written a ton of stuff. You can find
3: me online. I'm uh, I'm on Facebook, but I have a uh, my email is billairs 123 at gmail. I tell everybody billairs 123 at gmail. And I'm pretty good on email, so it's great to be with you guys. Thanks a lot for having me.
1: Thank you. Thank you. BG, uh, anything else you want to summarize? Well, before,
0: or... before that, I, I just want to say, Bill, I read a lot of stuff about you. I watched a lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people that don't like you. <laughs> well, they don't like you. <laughs> I,
3: think, I think they've got a stereotype, too. I, I honestly but, do. But I mean, it's too. not that it's not that I think everybody should like me. Everybody doesn't like everybody. But I think that there's this cartoon <laughs> character called bill Ayers, who it's fun to kind of poke at but that's not me and you know i'd be happy to you know i've had so many conversations with so many right wingers in so many contexts and we
0: always
1: we've seen them. them they're on youtube you
0: know, like I, I played, about an hour and 20 minute presentation just
3: on you i love it um
1: it if, if, it keeps,
3: if it keeps them busy and off the streets i'm for it and, and who I, now
1: bg what are they gonna say after this podcast with us are we are, are we not tied to the <laughs> I don't mind because You know hopefully...
3: what? It didn't hurt Obama, it
0: won't hurt. Yeah, you. I don't <laughs> think so. Um, and hopefully, you know, by you taking it to the
1: microphone
0: you, you had an opportunity um to share with us your story and um I'm with you, Bill, in spite of what the people say. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us okay. so much. Appreciate it. Um, as far as the podcast, you can find us at freelunchpodcast.com, podcasts and blogs. Also on Twitter. Let us know what you think. Free lunch Podcast. Also on Instagram, Free lunch Podcast. And be sure to check for this
1: video. YouTube, Free lunch TV. So thanks again to Bill BG. Another long day, another working day, but a great podcast. Uh, I hope the Free Lunch family and the listeners really enjoyed this podcast. But I guess two things, two takeaways for me. Number one, go go read and purchase the book *Fugitive Days*. Uh, go read about the Weather Underground. Very interesting. But um, also get involved on the educational front. And and we, we did a we did a conversational education bill. And and I was really high on PTAs. And and whenever we get this forum back again. I do want to reintroduce that conversation and sure. talk about having these different PTA because I think PTA or PTOs are really important. And so I, I, I kind of just want for our listeners to um, to get involved in the schools and really um, re- go back and listen to this conversation uh, specifically around the education piece and how we should expect the same level of education that the elite are getting um, or that... Um, our so-called leadership is sending their students to, so we should demand those things. But I'm rambling now, so I just want to say thank you, guys, for tuning in and listening. We are the Free Lunch Podcast, home to the New South Movement. This is your boy Titan. and got my man BG with me, and we out of here. Stay, boy, game, dance, let's
2: go, let's go, let's get it. Let's go, let it go now. Let's go, let's go, let's get it, let's go, let it go, now, let it go, let's get it, super mathematics, not a problem, no lie for that old block, so sign away for that bull rock, super small handcrafted all designs, no day no lock, flow tougher than tough times, blacker than the grambling they drumline. no overdose, I'm overwork, I'll be away from punch time, be yeah, everywhere like sunshine, I lead right across punch line, I beat the track, I eat track brown paper breakfast lunchtime dinner date dessert train wrong with all no hunger you see the sign between the line it's G's only no dummies i flow lovely, they go nothing they catch feeling these hoes touchy i tell that job off no bunch, no way home post-study but you're so party Bless your soul, sometimes the best way to touch it stand up and go. let's go let's go let's get it and let's go let it go now nah. Let's go, let's go, let's get it, let's go, let it go now, nah. let it go, let's get it, ha. mathematics, before I chose the path, the path chose me, This a Lord's plan, divine decree.